With all of that said, Ecclesiastes chapter 8. We are in the home stretch of this book. We will finish it up in June. That's just how schedules work out. It is what it is. Now, I have warned you before that the application portion of the program of this book has begun. Solomon has examined the world and he has discovered that it is, everything is just amazing, right? <laughs> we wish. No, everything, depending on your translation, is vanity, foolishness, futility, uselessness. It's a mystery. Pick your word, go with it. It'll be fine. Okay, there you go. There's your, there's your lesson in translation right there. So, Solomon thinks he's got some answers. Again, now you have to flesh those out, which means we have to be careful because you have to read this and examine. Is this, is this application because of the wisdom from God or because of the wisdom from the world? Terms and conditions may apply. Your mileage will vary as you apply. You have to pay attention. Now, with that said, reminder, for all of Solomon's wisdom, for all of his wealth, for all of his accomplishments, for everything that has been granted to him, he is not God. Neither are we, neither is any other human being that you know. That's good news, by the way. You do not want to live in a universe run by me. I do not want to live in a universe run by you. It's nothing personal. Nothing personal. It's just I don't want you to be in charge of everything, just so you know. That's also part of the problem. That's the problem of our world today. It's the problem that Solomon has, even as he's writing, is that he can't know and understand everything because he is not omniscient, which is, again, is a good place to be. So let's remember that as we go through this. And let's dive in, shall we? All right, verse one. Who is like the wise man and who knows the interpretations of a matter? A man's wisdom illumines him and causes his stern face to beam. Now, the answer to the question is really simple. Who is like the wise man and who knows the interpretation of a matter? And, um, well, nobody. Nobody. Your answers and your wisdom should come from God. Now, that's the easy part. The harder part is the statement. A man's wisdom illumines him and causes his stern face to beam. That sounds awfully pride-filled, doesn't it? Does it be, be like, I'm smarter than you? Dun, da, da, da. You know, music, the wind blowing behind you. you know. <sighs> now, yes, if you interpret this strictly from a human perspective, but in order to make sense not just of this verse, but of the verses to come, we have to have some foundation in the Old Testament. So if verses, if verses 2, 3, and 4 require some Old Testament history, what are the odds verse 1 doesn't? Pretty small, right? So, so we're going to lean on some Old Testament history and things like Exodus chapter 34. It came about when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand as he was coming down from the mountain that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because of his speaking with God. What causes your face to shine? What illuminates you? Not your wisdom. God's wisdom. And we also have some other rationale for this because this would have been an understanding that Israel was quite familiar with. What was the benediction from the priest? Numbers chapter 6. Speak to Aaron and to his son saying, thus you shall bless the sons of Israel. You shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance and give you peace. That would have been a familiar refrain and a blessing that every Israelite would have known. It had been like if you grew up in church and someone looked at you and said, what's the, Lord, what's the uh, Lord's Prayer? 
You just, you just reflexively go through 10, 10, 12 years of Sunday school, what starts happening? <laughs> Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Like, even if you, even like me, see, this is always the weirdest thing about things that become part of your culture. I didn't grow up in church. As an adult, I have never used a King James Bible. Why is it in my head? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Where did that come from? It's just part of the culture. The, uh, the, the German term that we end up using in all the history books is it's part of the zeitgeist, the world in which you inhabit. The Lord's Prayer does that in our modern world. Like every football game, there's, for 40 years, you've, been, you've watched a football game on TV. What is some dude doing with a yellow sign? What's on the yellow sign? John 3, 16. Everybody knows it, and everybody knows it in good King James because since the 60s, people have been reading because, what does that mean? And then Because uh, every house has had a Bible since the beginning of time because it's the one thing we've gotten right is we just keep giving them out like, you know, I don't even know, like confetti at a parade or something. We just, here, have a Bible. Take a Bible. We don't, we have a Bible. I don't care. You have another Bible. We're Oprah with cars. You get a Bible, and you get a Bible, and you get a Bible. So, somewhere buried in your basement, even, you know, the angry atheist pagan was able to go, which John Oh, yeah, we know that one. That's the numbers six blessing, the concept of the Lord blessing you and keeping you and making his face shine upon you. Solomon is leaning on that. This is part of both the wisdom of God and the wisdom of the world. This is one of those places where they come together because something of God has entered into the culture. So Solomon can build upon that. Hence, we can continue. I say, keep the command of the king because of the oath before God. See, Israel had, well, part of Israel had actually made an oath, 1 Chronicles 29. So you know it's a good day. We got Exodus, we got Numbers. Who quotes Numbers in 1 Chronicles in the same sermon? See, see how messed up we are? <laughs> then Solomon sat on the throne of the Lord as king instead of David his father, and he prospered and all Israel obeyed him. All the officials, the mighty men, and also all the sons of King David King David pledged allegiance to King Solomon. The Lord highly exalted Solomon in the sight of all Israel and bestowed on him royal majesty, which had not been on any king before him in Israel. Now stop for a second. Solomon has inherited peace, not because Solomon was a great warrior, but because his father David was a great warrior. Solomon will build the temple, not because Solomon was a great engineer, but because David had done the work of making the treaties and accumulating the materials and getting the plans laid out. David had done all of this. Solomon's job as king is basically this. Don't mess up. (laughs) You've been granted this massive kingdom. By the world's standards, you have been granted peace, you have been granted security, you have been given wisdom and wealth, you have been given everything that you need to, that you need to accomplish the work that God would have you to do as king. All you have to do is follow the path. Now, Christian, how easy is that? <laughs> because what do we do every single day? I will be wise. I will be like the Most High. I will follow all of these things. These become the breakdowns. And that's part of the warning here. This is the oath that has been taken before God by Israel. Yes, what is assumed about the work of the king? You have to go to Deuteronomy 18. It shall come about when he sits upon the throne of his kingdom. This is talking about the king, obviously. He shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. It shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life. How many of the days of his life? Just make sure you're paying attention. That he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing 
all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left, so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. So we're coming around. Time out. The assumption of the king of Israel is not that you'll come up with some brand new idea. You will initiate some grand agenda. You will do this new and marvelous thing because you are the spanking new hotness and will come up with something. No. Write the law. Read the law. Study it. Know it. And by extension, you will know who God is, what he has done for people. Because remember, don't do not fall into the modern trap. When I tell you the law, you immediately go, Leviticus. Mm. You told an Israelite the law, you would mean Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. You would have learned history. You would have learned the working of God in humanity, what was wrong with this creation, why it went wrong, and what the cure is going to be. You are supposed to study this all the days of your rule. And by the way, you write this in the presence of the Levitical priests. You know, the guys going in and out of the tabernacle, soon to be a temple, the guys offering sacrifice, the reminders of the work of God day in and day out for his people. Your entire ruling life is supposed to be centered not on you, not on your people, but upon God. Now, if I gave you that kingdom, Christian, and I told you that that's your government, how do you feel? I feel pretty good. The, yeah, that, that, this is gonna, there's going to be more good days than bad days. I want to follow this government. I want to keep this in mind. This is, this, it's it's going to be a good day. Keep that in mind because that's what this was supposed to look like. Now remember, Solomon is dealing with wisdom from, hang on, remember my, we had wisdom from God. I'm going to get this backwards by the end of the day. And the wisdom of the world. So we continue, verse 3. Do not be in a hurry to leave him. That's the king. Do not join in an evil matter, for he will do whatever he pleases. Well, that escalated quickly as far as the king is concerned, didn't it? Since the word of the king is authoritative, who will say to him, what are you doing? Now stop. What's the answer to that question? Who will say to the king, what are you doing? I know what you're thinking. What's your immediate answer? God, but don't go there right away. In that kingdom set up, as it has been laid out, who can go to the king and say, what are you doing? Priests, the Levites, they should be able to go. The prophets of God. David sins against God, sins against the people, sins against Uriah and Bathsheba. God comes down from on high and goes, I am very angry with you. What have you done? What does he do? He sends Nathan the prophet. There is supposed to be an accountability because the purpose of writing that law, of reading that law, and of studying that law is not just so that the king will be wise and I will know the commandments and I will be able to quote Leviticus 22.11 to you because it is in my mind at all times. I don't even know if there is a Leviticus 22.11. I'm hoping that there is. If not, have fun finding it. <laughs> It'll be, Lou's going to look it up tonight. <laughs> I immediately saw him grab the phone. He's like, oh, yeah. if it's something good, tell me. If not, don't worry about it. <laughs> if it's something like you shall not blaspheme the Lord, that's just a great pull, you know? <laughs> that's not the goal of this. The goal of this is what? King, what are you? I'm a person. I'm a man. And I'm subject 
to the God of heaven, to the king of creation, that I am not great in the sight of anyone, but I am supposed to be working unto the service of God. That's supposed to be the reminder. Now again, you see where the wisdom of God and the wisdom of the world smash into each other. The king has this authority because it has been granted by God, but as the king forgets his place before God, what kind of attitude develops? And realize how quickly that happened. We went one one guy, one guy. We went from, you are that man, and David repenting in sackcloth and ashes and writing beautiful psalms of repentance to, I'll do what I want when I feel like it. You know, we're basically now Mel Brooks. It's good to be the king. And that's what's happened in one generation. Remember, ultimately, Christian, the standard. Psalm 2. O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence. Rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. That's the reminder. Now, Christian, even if the king forgets that standard, you should not. Remember that as we go through this. We'll come back to that idea in a minute. Actually, right now. Verse 5. He who keeps a royal command experiences no trouble, for a wise heart knows the proper time and procedure. Now, let's stop for a second. That's probably true. Well, it's not probably. That's true regardless of the quality of your government, right? For the most part, if the government makes a law and you follow that law, you're going to be okay. Again, for the most part, right? Even if the law is dumb, even if the law is immoral, if you follow it, the government's going to say what? We appreciate that. Thank you for your service. Now, we would prefer godly government, right? We would prefer governments that remember the warning of Psalm 2, that remember the hope of Deuteronomy 18, and that actually remember that they are not the end-all, be-all of creation, but that God is. And that's what Romans 13 is hoping for. Rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For government is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for the government does not bear the sword for nothing. It is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Now again, is that how things are or how they are supposed to be? That's how they're supposed to be. Because you live east of Eden, you live with a government that is not always going to follow that. You live in this world, right? And you live in a world that's like verses 2, 3, and 4. The government says jump, and then they look at you and say, why aren't you jumping? We told you to jump. Start hopping, bunny. You're not doing what we told you to do. Things, no, no, no. See, they don't want you to say how high. They just want you to start jumping and hope it's good enough, and then they'll correct you as you go. That's always the rule. Now, you live east of Eden. You know about Deuteronomy 18. You know about Psalm 2. You know what it is supposed to look like. How now should you live? First uh, Peter chapter 3. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? The answer is, well, depending on the day, the government. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you, to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence, and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. 
This is where some of our ideas come full circle. I'm forever telling you this, Christian. What's your calling in the world? To be faithful. When? Now. Now. I can't worry about always. I this is going to sound so weird. You can't worry about always. I can't to make sure you are always faithful. No, 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 be faithful now. Think through and evaluate now. Because if I can handle that, you know, you know what's going to happen to always? It's just going to work itself out with no problems. Be faithful now. Thinking, evaluating, understanding what my foundation is, what my hope is, and what that means in this world. And recognizing that even though I remember the standard, there's probably a pretty good chance that they don't that they have forgotten it. So what do I do? I live faithfully now. But what happens if that runs against the zeitgeist as the world has defined it? What happens if that runs against what the world has called good? (laughs) I have a higher and a better standard. I remember the warnings of Psalm 2. I remember that, yes, the justice as I see it in this world sometimes stinks, but... There is coming a day when there will be perfect justice, when there will be eternal justice, and God will bring every evil act to the front, and he will bring it to judgment, and I will have nothing to fear because I am trusting a better kingdom where righteousness dwells, not this broken kingdom where who knows what we've got on the throne. And realize that these are promises and reminders that are given to Israel, who are supposed to be remembering Deuteronomy 18, who are supposed to be knowing about Psalm 2, who are supposed to be living these things out day in and day out, who have the priests going in and out of the temple, who have the sacrifices daily. Never forget that, by the way, when you go all the way back to the tabernacle and then later on into the temple. It's not just like there's a festival every so often. You know, you get the three major festivals, you get the Day of Atonement. It's not just that. There is something going on at the temple every day. Every day, that number six benediction, the Lord bless you, the Lord keep you, the Lord make his face to shine upon you. The priest would have been saying that every day. Every day, there is something to be offered. There is something to be done, basically, from sun up to sunset. You get up, you go to work, you offer sacrifices, you offer praise, you offer worship, you offer on behalf of the people because you are the representative and you offer it as a service unto God because that is what you are as a priest. Constantly. If you had walked by the temple, there would have been livestock going in and out every day. There would have been smoke ascending every day. There would have been incense being brought in and burnt every day. There would have been people in the corner reading and studying and people proclaiming every single day. And yet, they forgot. And yet, they twisted it. Because what is the condition of the human heart? Yeah, what did Jeremiah tell you? Deceitful and wicked. Who can know it? And part of our problem is, again, how we see the world. And Solomon recognizes that, so he's going to deal with that. Verse 6. For there is a proper time and procedure for every delight, though a man's trouble is heavy upon him. We've done this a bunch. This is that hammering that you're getting in Ecclesiastes. Check your perspective. We went back to chapter 3. There is an appointed time for everything. There is a time for every event under heaven. And now the back of your brain is going, turn, turn, turn. There is a season. See? I told you, I don't, again, I don't know anything about the birds who sang. You just remember the guy who wrote it, crazy communist, you know, lovely, lovely dude. But anyway, <laughs> it is what it is. I don't make the rules. I just live here. That truth, though, doesn't go away. Ecclesiastes 3 is always in effect. Ecclesiastes 1, there's nothing new under the sun, is always in effect. This understanding is always in effect. You get things like 2 Corinthians chapter 12. What does Paul tell you with his troubles? I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, and with difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, 
then I am strong. See, we think wrongly, we're going to get to this again in a minute, that things are going well. That's when our faith is the best. I got really bad news for you. You know when you're going to pray the hardest in your life? <laughs> when things are really bad. Not like a little bit bad, but really bad. Then you're going to stop and go, you know, I probably should have been doing this the whole time. Okay, fine. You know what you can't do anything about? All those other times you should have prayed. What can you do now? Be faithful now. Worry about what you're doing now. Letting go of what lays behind. Persevering forward, Hebrews 12, to the upward call of Christ. This is what you're doing and how you're supposed to be living day in and day out. This is the reminder about your perspective. The government is messed up. The world is broken. My heart is deceitful and wicked. Okay. But Christ is redeemed. But Christ has given me his righteousness. Christ has declared me good before the throne of the Father. Christ has promised me a place in his kingdom. Christ has ushered me into a good place. Christ will carry me along. The Holy Spirit has not forsaken me. The Holy Spirit has not forgotten me. The Holy Spirit will not allow me to fall away. You guys know my joke about the, the, the footprints, right? I haven't done this in a while. Reminder, how many of you have ever had the footprints picture? You know, There was two footprints in the sand, and then during the hardest points of my life, there was nothing, and that is when I carried you. That was when the Holy Spirit clubbed you in the back of the head and drug your lifeless corpse across the finish line. That's where that was. Come on, you're making it. Let's go, let's go, come on. Because sometimes that's what Christian living looks like. In spite of you, in spite of you, he has not forgotten you. He has not forsaken you. He has not allowed you to fall. And therefore, you can rejoice because your trust is in the right one, in the good one who will bring you to the right end. So, let's continue with that in mind. In mind. Verse 7. If no one knows what will happen, who can tell him when it will happen? No man has authority to restrain the wind with the wind or authority over the day of death. And there is no discharge in the time of war and evil will not deliver those who practice it. Okay, there are five things in those two verses and what I have to say about them is true, 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 and true. (laughs) Now let's stop for a minute and be reminded. This is what the world is promising you. No one knows what will happen. Oh, so the world offers us no vision. Who can tell him when it will happen? No one has authority to restrain the wind. Oh, so you have no vision and you have no power. And you have no authority over the day of death, so you have no life. And you're, there is no discharge in the time of war. Ooh, that's wonderful. So you have no vision, uh, no power, no life, and you promise me no peace. And evil will not deliver those who practice it. And while you're at it, you're offering me no salvation. Other than that, the lie of the world is you can have everything. As long as it doesn't involve wisdom, peace, salvation, or life. You you can have it all, baby. (laughs) Once again, what you're seeing in Solomon's understanding, the wisdom of God colliding with the wisdom of the world. This is true about humanity. But what does the world try to offer you on a regular basis? All of those things. And yet it has nothing but it also claims to have all authority over everything. This is the lie and the confusion of everything that is going on. So let's continue. This will make sense in a minute. Verse 9, all this I have seen and applied my mind to every deed that has been done under the sun, wherein a man has exercised authority over another man 
to his hurt. Now, we covered this multiple times in multiple chapters. Solomon has seen, Solomon has understood, and it has accomplished exactly what? Nothing. You give people power and authority, what do they do with it? You give people wisdom, and what do they do with it? You give people the power to make peace, and what do they do with it? You, you, yeah, in everything. Okay, Solomon, grand question to ask. So what? Here we go. Verse 10. So then, I have seen the wicked buried, those who used to go in and out from the holy place, and they are soon forgotten in the city where they did thus. This too is futility. <laughs> Give me something that works, please. Once again, what are you seeing? An understanding of God colliding with an understanding of the world. Now, this might be good news, depending on how you understand one phrase. Anybody want to take a guess what the phrase is? Who used to go in and out from the holy place? See, there's, there's two ways of looking at this, and, and I read three different commentaries and got two and a half different answers. <laughs> yeah, one on each side, and then one guy tried to split the baby and give you no answer, which is always fun and helpful. You can understand the holy place as just the temple in general. People going in and out of the temple, day in and day out. Now, if, you, if that's your understanding, that this could be some good news. The wicked go in and out of the temple to offer their sacrifices, to offer their praises, and at the end of the day, what happens to them? Just like everybody else, they're forgotten. They got no reward, they got no benefit. But, I'm with you. If you're going to gun to my head, what's the holy place? That's, that's the inner curtains area. That's the holy of holies. Who goes in there? The high priest. Um, the wicked are going in and out of the holy place? The dude who's supposed to be offering sacrifice and cleansing himself so that he can offer sacrifice and cleanse the people is one of the wicked? <sighs> this is not good news. And not only that, it gets worse. So he dies, and he's buried, and he's forgotten. Now, remember I told you Ecclesiastes 1 is always in effect. That which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done, so that there is nothing new under the sun. What's the, the simplified adage of that is what? History does what? It repeats itself. Now, is that because human history is built upon the wheel of time, and as it rolls through, that which has been comes around again? No. No. The problem is, we make dumb decisions. And we suffer horrifying consequences as a result of them. And then we immediately do what? Let's not pay any attention to that. Let's just forget we did that dumb thing over there. Well, a couple decades go by, a couple centuries go by, and this new generation of spanky new people come along and say, we're smart, we're better than those people, what shall we do? We're going to make the same dumb decision because we didn't learn from the wisdom that came before us. So we make the same dumb decision and we get what? The same horrifying consequences. And by the way, if you really want a blitzkrieg view of history, it doesn't take that long to fall into this trap. Imagine, if you will, these uh, minor European powers are warring with each other and aggravating each other while having interdependent treaties with larger powers. And as they're having these squabbles and arguments with each other, the bigger powers behind them are kind of lobbing verbal insults and hidden bombs at each other in an effort to not have all-out war until those minor powers eventually escalate it to the point that something happens that involves everyone getting involved. Sound familiar? You feel like you're watching the news? Yeah, that's World War I. What are we doing? 
Ah, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. <laughs> this is the breakdown of humanity. This is what has always gone on. Which is why if you have a wicked, evil priest, are you happy when he dies? Be honest. Be honest. Yes. <laughs> See, I like when you guys are be like, no, wicked, evil, sinful priest going in and out of the holy place year after year offering sacrifice. No, I'm happy when that guy is removed. I will rejoice that that wickedness is undone. But it doesn't do us any good to then bury him and pretend like it never happened. Because what is that going to do for the next guy? Well, he got away with it. I mean, remember, this is the warning from Solomon in Ecclesiastes. You're righteous until the day of your death. What happens on the day of your death? You die. You're wicked until the day of your death. What happens on the day of your death? You die. See, if you forget your perspective that you are serving God, that you are there is something beyond this place, you look at the righteous and the wicked and say... Eh. <laughs> at the end of the day, the good guy died and the bad guy died. The bad guy just died with more stuff sometimes. You know, you know which path I'm going to go down? Especially when all of you people forgot about the wicked guy and how wicked he was and what he did, and then he prospered because of it. What happens to the next one in line? This is why you cannot ignore it. You cannot forget it. And why, Christian, you are supposed to stand above it. You are supposed to stand on the outside with a better foundation. You know, the analogy we're always using, the anchor that holds. Um, so what have you got? It was Ephesians 4 is your reminder that you're not driven about, right? Colossians 2 is that you are rooted like the mighty oak tree. Um, I've, I've lost my other one. Um, oh, uh, Luke 6 is the foundations in stone rather than sand. All of these are pointing out to, some, to the same thing, that you are steadfast. You are unmovable. Why? Because you're not built on the standard of the wisdom of the world, but you're built on the standard of the wisdom of God. Therefore, as the world's wisdom vacillates and goes back and forth into whatever new insanity they've come up with, which, by the way, remember, the new insanity is just the old insanity with brand new wrapping paper on it to make it look like it's something different. As they do that, you go, yeah, it was sin when you did it over there, and it's sin when you do it over here, and it's sin when you tried it over there, and you see how we haven't moved yet? Because we're not going anywhere. Oh, you don't like that we stand here unmoved? That's nice. Don't worry, because I have a reward in heaven and a place in the kingdom, and you might want to make sure you have the same. It's a reminder I always tell you, keep warring against God, and eventually something bad's going to happen to you. It may not be in this life, but Christian, where is your justice found? Not in this world in the world to come. That's why you can't forget. That's why you can't just go along with this and go, yeah, because if you leave the wicked priest, you leave him to do what he does, and then you try to bury that knowledge as quickly as possible. Yes, that is futility, because you have just told wickedness and sin, do what you want. I don't care. As long as you leave me alone, I don't care. Christian, when has sin ever gone? You know, we've devoured a lot of the world. You know, this is why locusts are used as a symbol of this. When does the locust look at the field and say, you know, guys, there were like 100 rows on this field and we've eaten 97 of them. Let's save the other three for tomorrow. Sound like a good plan? What does the locust do? He eats all 100 rows. And then when do the locusts stop eating? When there's one locust left. Because, <laughs> oh, look, we're out of stuff to eat. Come here, Dave. <laughs> They just devour. They just destroy. What's, this is the example that Peter gives you. What is Satan? Like a prowling lion seeking someone to rub his tummy and tell him nice things. No. Seeking someone to devour, to kill and destroy and undermine. This is what they do, which is why you can't just go, nope, I'm not looking. I'm not listening. No, 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 no. No, I'm anchored. 
I'm rooted, I'm built up in Christ, and I am trusting in his justice and in his judgments because as I do, I am secure in his kingdom. And as I do, I am proclaiming the right thing. And I am keeping the main thing the main thing and not following after whatever insanity they go back and forth on. Instead, I hold to the right standard. This is the warning and the hope. That's how you avoid the futility. You don't bury it. You don't forget it. But you know what is good and right and perfect, and you cling to it day in and day out. Let's continue. Verse 11, because this is humanity in a nutshell right here. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. There it is. There is sin at work in your heart and everybody else's heart now and then and forevermore. This is a constant warning in scripture. Second Peter 3. Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come in their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago. The earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. This is the reminder. This is, Jesus gives you the same lesson. When the rains came, what was happening? Noah's building the boat. Before the rains came, what are people doing? They're going to the store, they're having parties, they're doing weddings. Life is going on. And then the rain came. Lot had the angels in his house making a break for it the next morning. What was everybody doing the day before? Was everybody getting ready to do that morning? You know, there was somebody in Sodom, somebody in Gomorrah waking up that day, getting ready to go to work, right? Just, it's random Tuesday. It's just like nothing's ever happened. This is the warning. The lie of the world is, it's been how many years? It's been how long? And yet you still cling, yet you still trust, yet you still believe? Yes! Time is not the marker of what is true and good. God is. And that's part of the warning. The coming of the Son of Man will be like the days of Noah, will be like the days of Lot. It will be just as the warning here in Second Peter. You just keep telling yourself, yeah, he's not, he hasn't come yet, he's not coming back. And eventually... It's happening. Christian, that's the life you live. That's the hope you cling to. That's why you can be anchored while the world goes back and forth. Because you know that as they go back and forth, they're never going to discover the truth. They're never going to find the thing that satisfies. Because what does the world offer? No life, no salvation, no peace, no vision, no authority. It's nothing. It's the forever striving after the wind. But... As you are anchored in Christ, and as you are trusting in that eternal kingdom that has been promised, you are trusting in the right thing, and you are persevering towards the good thing, and you are able to warn those who are doing the whole back and forth. That's the hope. That's the truth of the matter in the modern world. But we don't want to hear that, because the heart is deceitful and wicked, and this is the lie. And by the way, Christian, this is the lie you're going to tell yourself on occasion too. You've thought it at least once. It's okay. It doesn't make you a good person. I'm not going to tell you it makes you a bad person. You already did. But remember as you live that this is why I tell you to be faithful now. Because you can't undo that time. And you can't worry about the next time you're going to fall apart. But you can worry about right now. 
and you can focus on how I worship and serve right now. So let's continue, verse 12. Although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life, still I know that it will be well for those who fear God, who fear him openly. But it will not be well for the evil man, and he will not lengthen his days like a shadow, because he does not fear God. See, this is again where Solomon's wisdom of God comes flying through, and he can't help himself. He wants to have that monarchy. He wants to have that kind of authority. He wants to rule like the ultimate dictator and have everything. And at the end of the day, what's still gnawing at the back of his brain? Yeah, the truth. And this is again... Remember the history of Solomon. So David prepares the materials for the temple. David prepares the, um, the diagrams and everything that's needed. David secures the borders. David builds up the treasury and all of these things. And Solomon just walks in and is like, again, just don't mess it up. Just keep it between the lines and you'll be fine. It's like the first time you learned how to drive and your parents were like, look, we're not going on the interstate. We're not going to make turns. What are we going to do? We're going to find an empty road in the middle of nothing and do what? Just go that way. <laughs> See the lines on each side? Just keep it between those and everything will be okay. And you're like, (laughs) that's all you have to worry about. And what does Solomon do? He can't help himself. Well, you know, yeah, God preserves the borders and God secures the kingdom. But if I marry that Persian princess over there, then the Persians won't attack us. And if I marry that Egyptian princess over there, then the Egyptians won't attack us. And if I marry that Moabite woman over here, then the Moabites will leave us alone. And, and you see what happens in seven, what is it, six, seven hundred wives later? Can't even fathom that or even understand that or comprehend that what is solomon doing well you know it'll be okay you know like just process how insane this is that wife like 422 was like can we put one of my pagan idols in the temple there's no pagan idols for me to worship and solomon's like which one are you again okay hold on yeah sure one it'll be fine (laughs) no no it won't be fine like you don't even care about her that much what are you doing man and the answer is from last week what do men want Peace and quiet. She complained. How do I make the complaint stop? Give her what she wants and I don't care. That's fine. We're good. What's he thinking about? What's he paying attention to? Is he remembering Deuteronomy 18? Is he remembering Psalm 2? No. I'm the king. I make the rules. I make the decisions. Therefore. Now at the end of the day, what's still gnawing at the back of the brain for Solomon? That I don't make the rules. That I'm not in charge. That there is someone else above me and beyond me. That's part of the reason he's writing this book is he's looking back on his life of futility because all of these things that he was going to accomplish, what has he done? The end of the day. And keep in mind, the brilliance of this is that you can actually see it because you do know it's Solomon's son, Rehoboam, who splits the kingdom because he's a nitwit. Because he comes in and he gets advice from the old advisors of Solomon, you know, the gray-haired old men that actually know something. And he listens to all his buddies that he's been running around with and splits the kingdom. Just, just, just in case you're ever wondering, anything you did was probably not as bad as ruining the kingdom of God. <laughs> Whatever you messed up and broke this week is probably not that bad. So, you know, if you want to have some comparison notes, you can, you can do that and you can rejoice a little bit. Solomon was wiser than he know. I do all of these things and I build all of these alliances and I secure this kingdom and some fool will come after me and destroy it all. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. You're this close to understanding it, dude. You're this close. And he was absolutely right. This is again why, Christian, you have to keep that ultimate standard in mind. Things like Matthew 24. 
The coming of the Son of Man will, just, will, will, just, will be just like the days of Noah. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. That's your reminder. Believe it or not, Christian, that's part of your hope. Always remember this. When I talk about salvation and we talk about judgment, they're two sides of the same coin. You will very rarely in the prophets find a talk about judgment for very long without somebody mentioning salvation. And you will very rarely find long expositions about salvation without somebody mentioning judgment. They go together. Why? Because the judgment of God on the sin of this world is your salvation. And your salvation from the sin of this world is their judgment. They go together. This is why you cling to the truth and why you trust in God and not your wisdom and not your standing in the world because the things of this world are going away. They have to because how many of the things of this world are corrupted by sin? Remember, what does sin corrupt? Everything. It's either redeemed in Christ or we sprinkle a little fire on it at the end and cleanse it that way. I don't know about you. I prefer the cleansing in Christ rather than the cleansing fire. Deal? Sound, sound like a good plan? Like, I don't want the holy flamethrower. <sighs> yeah, I, I don't want to go that way. That's the reminder of this world. And that's, again, the reason why we cling where we cling. Verse 14. There is futility which is done on the earth. That is, there are righteous men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. On the other hand, there are evil men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. And I say that this, too, is futility. Uh-huh. We've seen this before. We saw this when we went through Job. You see the same reminder in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 13. On the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans. This is talking to Jesus. About the Galileans who Pilate, whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. There's two understandings on that. One is that Pilate had actually executed the Galileans and then used their blood in the sacrifice that's probably not the way it went down. That's fairly gruesome. The other is not much better, is that there were Galileans who were engaged in offering their sacrifices when Pilate killed them. <laughs> now, that's not really a whole lot better, but either way, Pilate had killed some people at some point along the line with a sacrifice. And now, if you're a faithful Jew, like, where's the one time you should be left alone? Like, where's the one time God would make sure you're not going to die? Be like, Lord, I offered this sacrifice and... <laughs> That's, that's the, probably, the, you, you start looking at that guy like, what did he do? Like, imagine on a Sunday morning, we're in here, and like, it's the first Sunday of the month, and we're doing communion, and right after the prayer, somebody goes to tilt the juice back, and they're just gone. You'd be like, man, they really were bad this week. <laughs> You'd think it. Don't, don't look at me like I'm crazy. You would think it. You know you would. You'd be like, man, God used the communion wafer to strangle them. They must have been awful. That's what the Jews thought. So Jesus said to them, do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. This is the right understanding of calamity, by the way. This is the right understanding of catastrophe in the world. Imagine you're the builders. You're working on the tower, you're doing your construction job, you're moving bricks, you're doing whatever, and the thing falls over. And it falls on 18 people. Well, were there just 18 people on the work site? You, you, you know there was somebody standing like five feet away, and it fell, and it killed that guy, and it didn't kill this guy. And it didn't kill the guy on the other side. Your immediate thought is what? 
man, God must have been really mad. He threw a tower at those guys. What happened? It's almost as if humanity forgets that the book of Job is in the Bible. Because isn't this Job's entire reality? Is the three friends show up and say, all right, God killed your family. He made you sick and you got these, whatever those things are growing on you. And you've, uh, you've lost all your money and your wealth and your home and your wife is telling you to curse God and die. What'd you do, dude? Like, seriously, what did you do? You, you did something. Obviously, you did something. Just look at you. And Job's answer is what? I didn't do it. I didn't do anything. And always remember, at the end of the day, what did Job do? Nothing. That's part of the point of the book is that God rules and God reigns. Your job is to be faithful now. In good times, be faithful. In bad times, be faithful. When your friends are rejoicing, be faithful. When your friends are suffering, be faithful. And proclaim and exalt the goodness and greatness of God in all things as you live each and every day. That's the reminder here, because this is true about the world. You have looked out on the world and gone, man, why does that guy get everything? Like, why does evil prosper? Because it's a broken and sinful world. And sometimes in a broken and sinful world, broken and sinful things work. Don't ask me to make sense of it. It's not my job. Why? What is sin corrupt again? Everything. Therefore, what do you do? Anchored, strengthened, trusting not in this world, but in the world that is to come. And knowing that while I don't see justice now, and knowing that while it's been a while since the promises were made, they're coming to pass. That he has not forgotten any of the promises that he has made, and he will not forget any of the promises that we are waiting on. Therefore, we can trust, and we, be, we can be secure, knowing that he will bring them to pass, and that righteousness will be done, that justice will be accomplished, and that in all of these things we can trust in him. Verse 15. So I commended pleasure, for there is nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat and to drink and to be merry, and this will stand by him in his toils throughout the days of his life, which God has given him under the sun. Isn't that the world's answer to everything? Every single time, right? I mean, 1 Corinthians quotes it, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow... We die. What's, um, how do you put it in modern parlance? Uh, we're here for a good time, not a long time. Or if you've got a teenager, you have heard at some point in your life, YOLO. Meaning what? You only live once. <laughs> Wake up, we lost a verse. <laughs> the computer's probably fighting with it. There we go. This is the same idea. It's not new. It's not some brilliant thing we've come up with. It's a way to soothe our conscience. It's a way to lie to ourselves to say, no, 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 no. I don't want the better thing. I want what makes me feel good when? Now. Now, Christian, is there a better way? The answer is yes. Verse 16. When I gave my heart to know wisdom and to see the task which has been done on the earth, even though one should never sleep day or night, and I saw every work of God, I concluded that man cannot discover the work which has been done under the sun. You're right. Remember, this is part of Solomon's aggravation. There's a pain in wisdom. We've talked about this. You look out in the world from your anchored perspective and you see them doing their rabble-rousing routine. And you know what? There's a better Wait, but but and yet what do they keep doing? They keep rushing headlong into error. They keep following the same course and the same pattern time after time after time after time. And you're going, but 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 please no, don't call me a fool. Just listen. There's a better way. And it hurts. And it's difficult. 
and it's aggravating. I get it. That doesn't mean you stop being faithful now. That doesn't mean you go, you know what? Forget you people. I was those people. You were those people. Some of you were young enough you don't remember. God bless you. I hope that's my children. (laughs) I'd rather my children go down my wife's road than my road. You know, where you just like, you don't know anything else but being in church. You don't want to be my road going, "Uh, why do I remember these things? (sighs) That reminder is a reminder that the judgment, that the justice of God that we long for is coming on actual people that will actually experience an actual judgment. Therefore, while we are anchored, we proclaim, and we do this day in and day out. And even if they don't like it because we, do, we still know what? Eh, I'm not, you're not supposed to like me, and I'm not supposed to like this place. I'm supposed to love God, and I'm supposed to love his kingdom and his appearing and love the truth that he's given me. That's the better way. So, this may be true. Finish up on verse 17. He sees the work of every... Uh, the wor- uh, the the, the, every work of God, if I could read in English, would be all set. Concluded that man cannot discover the work which has been done under the sun, even though man should seek laboriously, he will not discover. And though the wise man should say, I know, he cannot discover. And we are actually going to pause there this week because that is the ending of this chapter and the beginning of next chapter. But Christian, that's where you rest. That's the better place. You don't know. You don't know. Rejoice. See, what's part of Solomon's problem? Solomon's too smart for his own good. I know, and I can examine, and I've been given all of these things, and I can test the things of this world, and I know the truth of God, and as I live in this world, I can see what? (sighs) And he's forgotten Deuteronomy 18, and he has forgotten Psalm 2, day in and day out, and he's thought, who should be in charge, and who should make these decisions? Me, Christian, you don't know. You don't know when. You know what, and you aren't supposed to. And you are supposed to rest in Christ's accomplishment. And you are supposed to be built upon his foundation. This is the, um, this is the warning to Job, right? Because what does Job do? Job complains for chapter after chapter. I want God to show up and give me hearing. I want God to show up. And the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, you have understanding. And Job immediately knows what? My bad. You're really big and I'm not. (laughs) Therefore, you know what I'm going to do? What's Job's response when he finally gets to get a word in edgewise? I'm going to sit here and be quiet and I'm going to repent in dust and ashes. My bad. Like you never want God to show up and tell you, put your big boy pants on. Let's talk. Uh Uh-uh. (laughs) that's the reminder of where you are in this world christian that the same god that rules over you is the same god that rules over them is the same god that rules over every government and you can trust in him and you can rest in that that i don't know what he's doing i don't know what's being accomplished but you know what i do know it'll be for the building up of his kingdom and the betterment of his people that their faith will be strengthened that their perseverance will be refined and that they will be like that which has gone through the refining fires and they will be successful and they will stand gloriously in his kingdom because the holy spirit has sealed it because christ has accomplished it because the father has ordered it and because i know that I can rejoice and I can rest and I can see all of the insanity of the world and I can cling to Christ knowing that he has not forgotten me. Let's pray.